Well, at this time, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. This is a, a message that is centered on Jesus as a priest and also a king. Let me ask this question. Is he qualified to be your savior? You might say yes immediately on paper. Yes, he's qualified. But in your hearts, is he qualified for you to trust in him for your eternal salvation? Is he all you need? I met with some young uh, boys, uh, some 11th graders, during their lunch hour this week, and we were going through Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. And a phrase uh, that we read is worth uh, noting. It's, hell itself is truth known too late. Think about that. Jesus put it this way. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you're like me, you want certain things nailed down in life, right? You want your household finances to be nailed. You want general relations and relationships in your home to be harmonious. You um, want your, your bank statement to check out, your job to be going okay. You want to be thinking in terms of your own retirement. But the most crucial category for you to have nailed down in your life is your eternal destiny, right? Is your eternal salvation, that's what you want to have nailed down, When you have this assurance of salvation, it reframes every priority of your life. Think about it. God owns your bank statement. He owns your money. He owns your family. And really, your concern now is their spiritual condition. The most important relationship you have with your family is knowing their relationship is right with Christ. Your health, that'll be remade in heaven. So just let that go, right? Your job now is a calling. Your retirement means that you might end a career, but you're going to keep working for the Lord. You know, these last few paragraphs in the book of Hebrews take us on quite a ride, don't they, in terms of the assurance of salvation. In one breath, the writer of Hebrews will talk about Christ. He's your brother. He's your elder brother. He loves you. He sympathizes with you. He, he's in sync and harmonized with you as you suffer. He's sympathetic. But then, in the turn of a page or one paragraph later, it's this manic difference where suddenly it's highest stakes warnings are delivered. Don't fall into a hard-hearted state. Don't drift. Don't spurn the true salvation. Don't crucify again the Son of God. That's coming up in Hebrews 6. Don't hold Jesus in contempt. And don't utterly fall away. What makes these two opposites fit together? A sympathetic high priest who loves you and warnings to not forsake him at the same time to the detriment of your own soul? Well, it's the assurance of salvation. Because the great salvation that you have, as Hebrews 2.3 calls it, to the sympathetic high priest is the same great salvation that has to be exclusively tied to this sympathetic high priest. No sympathetic high priest, 
no salvation. No direct tie to Jesus as your elder brother who loves you, where you were marathon running the race, following Jesus, looking to him as the author and finisher of your faith. If you don't have that, you're under a judgment. You're in danger. The assurance of salvation is what ties the warnings together because you look at a warning in Scripture and you say, I'm warned and I'm sobered, but this does not apply to me because I am in safekeeping with my sympathetic high priest. So how do you get there from here? Perhaps you are sitting here struggling, as I have before, long time ago, with the assurance of your salvation. Perhaps you're struggling. The struggle of my assurance of salvation came because I was not genuinely a believer. I thought I was saved at seven. I went forward at the end of a evening worship service. I met a kindly, gentle pastor at the front. I grew up down the street in my neighborhood from this church. I knew this pastor. He lived in my neighborhood. He would pick us up for VBS, beeping the horn. Great guy. Prayed with him, but had no assurance of my salvation. And primarily because, for me, I had not yet believed. I didn't know this priest, King Jesus. I didn't believe this King Jesus for who he really says he is. For who he was and who he is. To know Jesus is to know that he is the supreme and superior one who is qualified. It's a key word, qualified to save you. He is sufficient. He's all you need. His cross work is all you need to get to heaven. When this hits home and changes your life, the assurance of salvation should begin to be answered. So we're seeking to know the qualifications of a superior high priest. A high priest in the Old Testament was one who was qualified to secure a temporal reconciliation through the offering of sacrifices. Our superior high priest, who is also a king, is qualified to secure eternal salvation, eternal reconciliation, and an eternal assurance. So let's look at verses 1 to 4 in our section here, beginning in chapter 5, because I want want you to see the qualifications of a high priest from the Old Testament. First of all, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses, with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, the overarching theme and message of these verses is that God appoints the high priest. High priests, they were not elected officials. They didn't run for office. They didn't um, put in uh, for them to be candidates for this kind of task. 
You wouldn't have wanted to be a high priest, I assure you, if God hadn't put you there. He's the one who appointed people to this task. A priest was never self-appointed. In other words, man comes to God on God's terms, not his own terms. But God in his grace appointed high priests. He chose them, you see that in verse 1, and appointed them to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He wanted to create a bridge between man and God, a bridge that is severed because of sin. But God in his grace cared enough to reconcile people to himself when they would sin so that they could have a clear conscience. Gifts and sacrifices would be offered by the high priest, the end of verse 1. These gifts and sacrifices were voluntary gifts that were brought again and again and again in temple worship so that people could repent. It's part of the ceremonial system in the Mosaic law, meal, grain offerings and peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, devotion offerings, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, thank offerings, restitution offerings, and most of all, transgression offerings or bloody sacrifices, particularly given on the day of atonement, the sacrifices for sins, for trespasses. This is what created the link between man and God in the Old Testament economy. Sin would interrupt fellowship and a bridge would be made so that man could get back to God. Sin would throw up a barrier, but the relationship would need to be restored. A priest is a representative to atone for sins. Listen, an angel, like mentioned in chapters 1 and 2, that would never do. God would appoint would choose, would designate a man to help a man on his behalf. Do you see that? A man, not a judge, a man, just like the sinner, to be a mediator, a go-between, a help, a help. These were human representatives Exodus 28 and 29 speaks of their qualifications and things that they would have to undergo in terms of ceremony and dress. And let me just say this up front. When you're talking about atonement, you're talking about your sins being forgiven or covered. These were acts of repentance, never penance. These were not meritorious acts. When someone would offer a sacrifice, it wasn't earning their right before God. It wasn't earning their righteousness or their their forgiveness before God. It was a way to symbolize true faith and true repentance of a contrite heart. That's why in Psalm 51, uh, when David repented, he repented from the heart. And God was saying, look, I'm not wanting your sacrifices. I want your heart That was the issue. These were actions of the heart. Everything from Genesis to Revelation has always been based on grace through faith. So there's like a golden thread through the entire Bible saying that we are saved by grace through faith. And then as believers, we come to God still on the basis of grace through faith. And that was even in the Old Testament economy in the Old Testament system. Welcome this morning to theology class, okay? Hebrews does this sort of thing. I'm sorry, but I'm not, really. 
Genesis 15, 6 says that the Abrahamic covenant was, was founded on Abraham's faith. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was salvation. We believe the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We exercise faith and we are reconciled to God just like Abraham was. Abraham was looking forward to a Messiah. Whether he was fully clear on that or not, we look back to a Messiah who's come. We look forward to a Messiah who awaits us right? And it's all by faith. It's always been that way. The Mosaic covenant is, is coming in in line of the Abraham covenant as a means to reconcile people in terms of repentance, in terms of restoring the relationship. Every offering in the Old Testament, every offering in the Old Testament economy, whether a grain offering, a wave offering, a thanksgiving offering, a blood sacrifice, a goat, a lamb, a pigeon, all of that foreshadowed, all of that prefigured and pointed to the once for all offering of Christ in the new covenant. And it was all based on the grace of God that was established at the Abrahamic covenant. Old Testament grace and New Testament grace. It bookends this ceremonial system that was going on. That was a bloodbath of symbolism of all of the sins that needed to be reconciled. Can you imagine something like that even today? As a new covenant Christian, what do we do? We sin and like a child we go, oh, doggone it. I have a broken relationship with my Heavenly Father. I feel bad about my sin. I'm going to stay in my guilt. Might still dabble in my sin a little bit. Might keep a little bit of sin in my pocket, even though I want to experience the free flowing joy of the Holy Spirit and the Lord, but I want to keep that sin. And then you say, no, I need to offer a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that being saved? No. That's being repentant. Do you see the difference? That's our sacrifice of praise to God. It's our sacrifice of repentance to God. Where we offer ourselves, Romans 12, 12 says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Hebrews 13 later on will say the same thing. Then Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Our consciences are clear when we come to our father, just like when we have broken fellowship in the home as a child. We come, he knows the sin that we've already done, right? He's omniscient. He sees into your heart. He sees the sin far worse than you see it about yourself. And when you come by faith to God, Your father, it's like a child coming into the lap of his father and saying, Daddy, I know I've sinned. Please forgive me. And then there's reconciliation. Do you see that? That's what we're talking about in an Old Testament sense. Why is this important? Well, look at verse 2. The priest, it says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This verse should maybe like it did with me, blow your minds in terms of your stereotype of what you thought a priest was like. I I don't know, maybe it was a failed Sunday school um, curriculum or whatever, but I always thought of a priest as someone who is more austere and elite in his turban and sash and, and 
breastplate and whatever um and thumen and that was going on in terms of telling him God's will and he had the robe and he would go behind the veil into a place that only he could go and no one else could go into the inner sanctum and I thought they were set apart in a way where they were almost robotic mechanically doing the operations of God on our behalf being careful not to die but doing things as perfectly as a human being could do well the picture here is less that and more of a person who is relating with us, who is aware of his own weakness, his own experiences with his own sins. This is really the heart of any spiritual leader. You don't want to be discipled by somebody who thinks they are better than you, do you? The priest was chosen by God, appointed by God, because of the softness of their hearts. The word dealing gently is actually a Greek term that talks about being in the middle. It's the idea that you're not so sympathetic that you're excusing sin, but you're also not on the other extreme judging people for the sins that they keep on committing. Talk about the temptation of the spiritual leader, the temptation of the high priest. Oh, well, here they come again. You know, I, I thought by now they would have run out of sheep, you know. Here they come. I got to get my hands bloody, you know, and, and do this for them. It says that the high priest is gently dealing with ignorant and wayward people, people who commit sins where there are sins that keep happening, but they come upon them. They're believers. They're, they're locked in a sin pattern that they just can't seem to quit. Sins of omission, sins like Paul mentioned, acting ignorantly in unbelief. Sins where people are swept up in a moment of weakness, in impulse or passion, they're mastered by temptations. We're around sins all the time, aren't we? If you're close enough to anyone, you know their sins, you know their weaknesses. But if you know your own weaknesses, you're less judgmental and the relationship will be healthy. And this is what was the qualification of the high priest. It was. He had to be one with men. He had to be human to be qualified to deal with people. People, by the way, that were cold and calculating, people who were um, stuck in their unbelief, they couldn't come and bring a sacrifice that would mean anything at all, right? It would be like someone playing church where you show up and you're trying to give a sacrifice of praise, but your hearts are far from the Lord Jesus, You might praise with lips, but if you have a cold, dead heart, nothing is really happening whatsoever. This is the kind of work for believers, a believing high priest with believing old covenant saints. So they were obligated, verse 3 says, to give a sacrifice for themselves. Look at verse 3. The next qualification is that a high priest actually had to sacrifice... For his own sins. He had to be a priest for himself. In one sense, a high priest needed a priest to be right with God. Says just as he does for the people. So he had to do something for himself first. Leviticus 1 through 7 speaks of this. Um, 29 times offerings are mentioned in those chapters. Leviticus 
9.7 says when Moses, that Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So they would come in, they would bring a goat offering on behalf of the people, they would sprinkle the blood within the veil of the Holy of Holies. He would enter the veil with the blood of a bull, a sin offering for himself first and his household. He had to do business with God first before he could help anyone else. Then he offered a goat sin for the people on the day of atonement and the scapegoat that he would release into the wilderness to speak of the removal of sins. Look at verse four. Verse four, it says, and no one takes this honor for himself. See mean. See mean. But only when God or when called by God, just as Aaron was. It means that nobody would put himself into the position of high priest according to himself. To, to be in spiritual leader for his own honor or for his own name's sake. It's just like a pastor. You don't want to do a job in spiritual ministry for honor, for your own name's sake. It was so important that the high priest be chosen by God that they had to be Levites and they had to be from the line of Aaron. Exodus 28, one says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel and serve me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So let me ask this question. How important do you think it was that a high priest or someone offering a sacrifice was chosen by God to be there? How important do you think that was? Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 16. This is the Old Testament. And this is the kind of story that you may have heard, but you may not have studied in detail just reading it through. But it did speak to me in terms of the significance of God's holiness. This is the tribe of Korah. As the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness... It speaks of uh, them and how they rose, verse 2, up before Moses with a number of people, the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they assembled together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Basically, they're saying, look, who do you think you are? Moses and Aaron, why do you think you can be our spiritual leaders? We're we're from the tribe of Levite. We're, we're, We're Levitical priests. We're as good as you are. That was their attitude. When Moses heard it, verse 4, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all the company in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So he told told them to take censers. Korah, all your company, put fire in them, put incense in them. Verse 8, and Moses said to Korah, here now, 
you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing that, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi with you, and you should seek the priesthood also. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. Look at this. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? If you look further down, verse 15, it says, Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. They were wanting to to prop up their own offerings. I have not taken one donkey from them and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present you and your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow and let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. Verse 18, so every man took the censer, put fire in it, laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, O God of the spirits of all flesh, flesh, shall one man sin, and you will be angry with all the congregation." The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 28, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan, Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away. And it says, look at verse 27. It's so sad. It says, they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, Abram, and Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. I think that detail was there to show how horrible this was. And Moses said, hereby, you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been done of my own accord These men die, all men die. And if they are visited by the fate of mankind, the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive in Sheol, you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said lest the earth swallow us up and fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men offering incense. What's the point? The point is that if you are presumptuous, if you presume on the Lord, God is not pleased. God is the one who calls, who appoints. And when people begin to presume on the Lord, practically, if you begin to presume on the Lord as your own priest... For your own soul's sake, if you try to prop up your own works 
or your own good deeds or your own self-righteousness, you're not going to heaven. And if as a believer you try to have the assurance of salvation by trusting in yourself, then you'll have no assurance of salvation, though you will be still going to heaven. Saul did this. He offered an unlawful sacrifice. He had no place to do this. In 2 Chronicles 26, it says, Uzziah went in and took matters into his own hands. It says he became strong within himself. 2 Chronicles 26, 16 to 23. He became strong in his own mind as a king and took matters into his own hands instead of relying on the priest. And the priest tried to push him out of the the inner sanctum. Don't go in there. Don't do that. And what happened to Uzziah? Struck with leprosy. Set apart, unable to finish his role as king. If you turn with me to Isaiah 6, this has some relevance and will build a bridge to another kind of priest who is also a king. Look at Isaiah 6. Begins in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, same king, struck with leprosy, the sin of Saul, the sin of Korah, this presumption to try to prop yourself up and say, I'm okay because I say that I'm okay based on my own priestly acts. Uzziah dies. And Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, who is the Lord? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that from John's gospel, chapter 12, verse 41. This is a vision of Christ, the Lord Jesus. It says, high and lifted up his train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face with two. He covered his feet and with two he flew. This is a king. The one called to another and one called to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at, his, shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Well, what did Isaiah do? Did he say, wow, this is a party. It's great to be with the Lord Jesus right now. No problem. No, he saw his own sins. Isaiah was the holiest man of Israel at this time. He's in the inner sanctum. He's seeing the vision of Christ as king with a robe that's filling the temple, with angels that are covering their face and feet and flying and declaring Christ's holiness. And what does Isaiah cry upon himself? He says, I am undone. I am under a woe judgment. Woe is me because of how I speak, because of the people that I am around. I am unclean. This is his vision. But ultimately, Christ who is king is also a priest. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is who we need. This is the one who is qualified. What's amazing is that Jesus, who is... This exalted one in Isaiah 6 
is the same Jesus who came as a suffering servant, as a, a wandering servant, homeless, giving grace, coming as an empathetic, loving human who is also God. Jesus, as high priest, comes low to meet you where you are. He's not elitist. He's not distant. He's coming near to save. So here's the principle. When you believe Jesus is qualified to save you, this assures you. This gives you the assurance of your salvation. You say, I don't have the assurance of my salvation. Well, do you believe in this Jesus who is high, but who also became low, who's sympathetic and loving, or are you trying to prop yourself up in your own self-righteousness? The qualifications here back in Hebrews are parallel. If you look back in Hebrews, you see in chapter 5 that the qualifications of an Aaronic priest or that high priest meshes well with how Christ was qualified as the supreme high priest. It says, verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself. Do you see that? It's amazing. Literally, he did not give glory to himself. This is the one that I just read of in Isaiah 6. And he came and does not give glory to himself. How do you know you're saved? Because you have a savior that's that sympathetic that doesn't give glory to himself, that comes in a lowly way to you as your priest, as a mediator between God and man. John 5, 44 and John seven eighteen and John eight fifty all speak of how Christ did not give glory to himself. He didn't take glory to himself. Only the glory that the father would give to him is what he sought after. He too was appointed, verse five, He didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. He didn't make himself high priest. He was appointed by God the Father. We know this from two Psalms that are referenced here. First of all, Psalm 2-7 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This was preached by Paul in Acts 13-33 in light of Christ's resurrection. The idea is that Psalm 2-7, that appointment, was that prophetic appointment was fulfilled when Christ rose from death. He was the perfect sacrifice. Did he stay in the grave? No. Never went under decay. He rose gloriously, victoriously. And this is where that prophecy is fulfilled, where God the Father said, you're my son. You are king. This is a kingly appointment. And secondly, verse 6, as he says in another place, this is Psalm 110, verse 4. It says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's amazing is that Christ, though he is king, though he is high and lofty, is willing, just like that vision in Isaiah, willing to come down to where you are, where you're falling apart, where you're looking at your life, where your introspection is on high alert, and you're saying, I am that person, I am that sinner. I am that bad. I am far worse than I even know. And Christ meets you right where you are. That's when the assurance of salvation floods into your life where you see him not just as king, 
but as your high priest. Do you see that? Who's sympathetic? Remember, the Aaronic priesthood had to be sympathetic. They had to go, I know I'm a sinner too. I've got to bring in my offering for my own sin to be right with God. This high priest is superior to that one because Christ is sinless. But at the same time, he comes in this parallel weakness to you, not as a sinner, but as someone who has endured the trials of this world in weakness, who experienced it all on your behalf, who experienced the guilt and shame of your own sin on his shoulders, who rose victorious from death as a king, who stoops low to come in and say, I want to mediate for you. I'm not going to judge you. I want to mediate for you eternal life. And when you believe that these qualifications are what make up your Christ, then the assurance of salvation overflows in the heart. He was vindicated as king, but he was also affirmed as a high priest. And a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to pick up a study on Melchizedek once we get into Hebrews 7. Melchizedek is the mystery high priest. He's the one mentioned in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. He's the one that Abram came to after he had um, beat up on the Amalekites and had some war spoils where he gave a tenth, a tithe to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek as a king of Salem or Salem, however you want to say that, the king of peace comes, but he's also not just a king, but also a priest receiving this offering on behalf of God. We don't know much any more about Melchizedek than that story we're going to unpack from Genesis 14 that's picked up again hundreds and hundreds of years later in Psalm 110 with a reference and then picked up again hundreds and hundreds of years later in Hebrews. That's what we know about Melchizedek. He's the mystery priest. Why do we have someone like this? Well, we have someone like this because Jesus, though he paralleled the Aaronic priesthood, he really comes from eternity past, right? As his own priest, which was prefigured by Melchizedek. Only Melchizedek, someone like him, could foreshadow really an eternal Christ, who's king and priest. I hope you're beginning to track with the significance of these titles, these ideas. Hebrews 7, 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, the speaking of Melchizedek, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek is a different kind of priest because we have a different kind of king who is our priest. So is this king priest qualified solely because he's eternal? Because he's the son? Because he's God? No. He's qualified to be your priest, to help you, to mediate for you, because he is also fully human. Fully human. It's very important. We're going to unpack this next week. I didn't have time to unpack all that was there in the following verses, but I'll give you a preview. Look at verse 7. It says, in the days of his flesh. This is speaking of Christ's earthly ministry. Now, the allusion here is going to be to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's going to go to the apex, but it, in, it incorporates his earthly life. In the days of his flesh, his pre-resurrected state, 
He's still fully human, but he felt things in a way that we feel them now presently in our pre-resurrected state. In his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. These are terms that build one on another. They're representing a test course that God the Father genuinely put Christ through. Here's a test. Here's a test at age 12. Here's a test at age 30. Here's a test at age 31. Here's a a temptation at age 32. Here's where people are blaspheming you or calling your works works of Satan instead of the works of the Holy Spirit. Here Here are the bombardments that were coming to Christ in his life. One test building upon another as he did all of this in the frailties of humanity. He did it through praying, through supplicating, with loud cries and tears. The word loud cries is really this sort of inexpressible idea. It's when someone is wailing uncontrollably in an uncalculated way, a reflexive way, humanly speaking. He did it through all-night prayer sessions with the Father, seeking the Lord in a building sense as the trials built towards the cross. One person put it this way, Jesus in no way while he was on earth did it on autopilot. People say, well, he's perfect. Of course he did on autopilot. No, he's perfect. He was sinless. But just because he was sinless doesn't mean that his tests were fake. He was tested genuinely, authentically, and he passed the tests that were laid before him. One person put it this way. They asked the question, would Jesus have gone to the cross because he cried out three times for the cup of wrath to, for him to not have to drink it at Gethsemane, right? Three times. Would he have gone to the cross at age 12? Would he have said, yes, Lord, not my will, your will be done? Would he have done that at 12? Was he ready at that point? How authentic do we believe Jesus' humanity really was? At age 30, was he ready to go to the cross? Was it his time? Or did his trials and tests build to that end? We're going to answer that question next time. Verse 8 says he learned obedience through what he suffered. As I mentioned before, I was raised in a Baptist church. It was a neighborhood church at the end of the street. And at seven, I connected with that pastor. And that pastor reached out to me in gentleness and actually made a house call and came over to my house. My mom there, he sat there and just talked about salvation. And I don't really remember all of what he spoke to me regarding. He wanted me to accept Jesus as my savior and for my soul to be at rest And as I said before, in retrospect, I don't think at that point I became a Christian, though I took steps toward the Lord. I don't believe I was regenerate. I didn't want to go to hell. But I didn't truly at that point understand what it meant to cast myself upon an eternal shepherd. I was comforted by a temporal shepherd, right? Some of you are in that condition right now where you've been comforted by a temporal shepherd or temporal religion. 
It, it hasn't yet pierced your heart that you need an eternal savior, this king, this shepherd, today. Today is the day of salvation. It's, it's time to stop playing games. No messing around. It's time to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be eternally saved. And perhaps you are eternally saved, but you don't have the assurance of your salvation. Why is that? What pet sin are you holding on to? What do you need to let go of so that you can be reconciled to your heavenly father? You can reach up to him and say, Abba, Father, forgive me for my sins. You are this tender, loving, eternal shepherd. You've made the bridge. Before I came to Christ, the guilt lingered. The confusion was there. The appetite for the world was strong. When I met my eternal shepherd, something broke inside of me. Sin's curse. I knew Jesus, and I knew that he knew me, and I really haven't struggled with the doubts that I had before that time. We need to embrace our eternal shepherd and love him with all of our hearts.